Today's episode is presented by State Bags. State Bags makes beautiful, well-made, inclusively cool products while using the power of business to give back to shift the narrative around social injustice. For every State Bag purchased, State hand delivers a backpack packed with essential tools for success to an American child in need. But their commitment goes beyond simply a material donation. State Bags has your back. And part of that commitment is making a difference in local kids' lives. To get you ready for your commute or wherever you are traveling next, State is offering our listeners 15% off their next purchase at statebags.com using the code POD. That's 15% off your next purchase using the code POD, P-O-D, at statebags.com. State Bags, they have your back. Welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Got my first cup of coffee, and it is in my giant coffee makes me poop mug. So it's actually like almost an entire pot of coffee in one cup. That's awesome. So I'll probably have to pee halfway through our recording today, but that's all right. Makes sense. The magic of editing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the magic of editing. Just makes me think of that Shia LaBeouf gif where he's like, magic. <laughs> he's wearing the crazy wig and mustache. How are you? I'm all right. I'm really tired. Mm-hmm. I had to wake up early today. So I actually have two coffees. I have a cold brew and I have like a make it home latte. That isn't, it wasn't doing enough, which is why I have the cold. (laughs) (laughs) Just wasn't hitting, hitting in the way that it should. So, so this week we're going to be going to the old West. Oh shit. Cause we haven't really done a Western story yet. No. And there's 85 million of them. Yep. The wild West was crime. (laughs) It was pretty much all crime, all crime, dusty crime. How we are is dust and crime. Good old fashioned root and toot and crime. Yep. But you could create a, pro- a podcast called Root and Toot and Crime and you can never be done. Yep. Just makes me think of that scene in um, the Lego movie where he comes out and he's like, shoot, shoot, gun, gun. <laughs> They're like, no. I know. Anyway, we're going to be talking today about Black Bart. Ooh. He doesn't sound like a Wild West. He sounds like a pirate. He does sound like a pirate. A land pirate. Is that where land sharks come from? <laughs> Land, land pirate. <laughs> the information for this episode was pulled from the following sources. A 2017 Smithsonian Magazine article by Kat Eschner. A 2015 Mental Floss article by Stacey Conrad. A 2014 San Francisco Gate article by Gary Kamiya. The Museum Ooh. of the City of San Francisco. Blackbart.com. Ooh, he's got his own website. He's got his own website. Dang. History.com and Wikipedia and links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. So this happened in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So he was a pirate. No, he wasn't a pirate. (laughs) He got so excited. He's in the Bay Area. (laughs) So I'm surprised you didn't do this, but most people, when they hear the name Black Bart, think of a Christmas story and the famous bandit that Ralphie envisioned saving his family from with his Red Ryder BB gun. 
you remember that? I do. I didn't remember the name, though. Black Bart. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, dad's going to judge me now. He's going to be like, we, we literally watch that movie every year, Madison. Yeah. I'd be so disappointed. So Ripley's Believe It or Not, Black Bart was a real person named Charles Bolton. And today I'm going to tell you about his career as one of the most prolific stagecoach robbers in Northern California. Stagecoach day. So he was a land shark. He was a land shark. Wow. So Black Bart, also known as Charles E. Bowles, was born in Norfolk County, England in 1829 to parents John and Maria. When he was two years old, he, his parents, and his six siblings migrated to a farm his father purchased in Alexandria Township in Jefferson County in upstate New York in 1831. That makes sense. Usually everybody kind of stuck around New York when they immigrated. Mm -hmm. And after moving to Alexandra Township, his parents had two more children with his last sibling born in 1834. So at that point when they emigrated, he was the seventh in line. So there were six kids before him. And then two more after they moved. Yes. Dang. Just a baby factory. Jesus, that's a lot. Those are a lot of mouths to feed, which was common then. Like, I'll give them that. You're basically birthing your workforce if you had a farm. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. And as a child, Charles, who went by Charlie at that time, received a common school education and excelled at sports. Nice. As a small child, he contracted smallpox, but he was able to overcome it. Did he have any scarring? I didn't see any in the pictures that I saw of him, but that doesn't mean that they weren't there. So the California gold rush started on January 24th, 1848. Mm -hmm. And a year later, Charles, now 20, along with his cousin David and older brother Robert, headed west and began prospecting in the North Fork of the American River near Sacramento. They came back home three years later in 1852, and when the three headed back out to California, both his cousin David and his older brother Robert tragically fell ill and died soon after arriving. So it was like the Oregon Trail? Kinda. And they kind of died of dysentery or like a rattlesnake bite or something? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's only fun in the Oregon Trail. Right. <laughs> when you're stopping to kill all the squirrels. Yeah, and then you kill too many and then... Like your brother dies and you're like, dang, who's going to eat all these squirrels with me? I I got you a water buffalo. In 1854, at the age of 25, Charles, who had since changed his last name to Bowles with with the W dropped out. Okay. Married Mary Elizabeth Johnson, age 16. Mm. Yeah. I know it was common. Yeah. But like, eh. Yeah. (laughs) In Plessis, Jefferson County, New York. So the couple eventually settled in Decatur, Illinois, where they would have four children together. It's like, what, a quarter of his family? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Haif. Oh, yeah. On August 13th, 1862, Charles enlisted in Company B, 116th Illinois Regiment, as a private in the Civil War. Nice. At his time of enlistment, he and Mary had three daughters. Ida, born in 1857, Ava, born in 1859, and Frances, born in 1861. All those names are popular now. I know. It's so funny. That's really funny. That's so funny. While he served, Charles was a good soldier and was promoted to first sergeant on July 1st, 1863. On him. Oh, wait. Did he become a criminal because of PTSD? No. 
Oh, I was like, I had something. <laughs> you can keep coping. guessing. <laughs> Inappropriate coping mechanism. <laughs> Prime solves everything. <laughs> Bury it deep in gold. Charles was seriously wounded on his right side on May 26th, 1864, fighting in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Considering it was also in the abdominal area, it's a miracle he survived. Wow. Following his recovery, he returned to his unit and fought in the Battle of Atlanta. Okay. Following the war, Charles was officially discharged on June 7th, 1865, with the rank of First Sergeant, along with the rest of his regiment in Washington, D.C. He returned home to his family, and his final child, Arian, was born in 1866. It's spelled A-R-I-A-N. Arian. Okay. I'm not going to say Arian, like the Aryan nation. I know. I was just like... Is he blonde too? Like, dang. <laughs> He's perfect. Eugenics works. <laughs> Way before eugenics was a <laughs> Around a year after he'd returned from Washington, after discovering that farm life wasn't really his thing, with his wife's permission, Charles set out for Idaho and Montana to take up prospecting once again for gold. Upon arriving in Montana, Charles purchased a small mine for $260, which is a cool 5000 today. I was just going to say, that's like buying a house. Yeah, that he worked with fellow miner Henry Roberts from Missouri. So they would use him. No. What? He didn't kill him. Wow. Normally they're like, hey, can you go have these on this? And then they (laughs) do all the gold. (laughs) He was an honest man. That's uh, gold mining etiquette. There you go. You have he, somebody he, go have these and then you go pow, pow, pow. And then you take all the gold that you didn't find because you bought a really crappy mine. Yeah. Well, he went against the code by not killing his fellow miner. Dang. And so, they, so far, he's like pretty okay, dude. Yep. So okay. They would use toms, which are troughs of boards that are roughly 12 feet long and 8 to 10 inches deep um, to sift for gold. Okay. And the end would be covered with a metal sheet that had holes in it, which would let grains of sand and gold pass through. Sidebar. I know we're like sidebar nation right now. Mm-hmm. Do you remember those like PC games where you did mine for gold? Mm-hmm. And that was one of the mini games. Yep. Was you like put your pay like your like pan mm-hmm. in the river and you had to like click so it would shake it to see yep. any gold. Can we bring all those back? I don't even remember. It wasn't was it like a side quest in Oregon Trail or something? It wasn't. It was like a it was its own game. And I remember always wanting to go to like the Yukon stop because you could get sled dog puppies. Was it the follow-up Yukon Trail game? Maybe. Cause like uh you would get stuck somewhere if you if you hit it in the wrong season. So you'd have to like stay and build your raft. Ooh. And then um you would have sled dog races. Like you would actually oh. do sled dog races. I, oh, I love that game so much. <laughs> <laughs> it was such Childhood. a fun game. They had those little pixelated husky puppies that you could like trade stuff to get the puppies and I I would be a dumb kid. So I would literally like trade everything valuable to get those puppies. Take all my food. I know. And then I'd be like <laughs> homeless on the street in the Yukon with puppies. And we all die. But at least we had each other for like a little bit. We all died of exposure. <laughs> so Tom's were probably like the tool then. Mm-hmm. For the most part. Uh, if you were in like water. Yep. So when you brought that up, a steady water supply was needed in order for the operation to work. Mm -hmm. Keep that in mind. It had to be in water. Otherwise, you had to dig. Yep. 
At one point, several men approached Charles wanting to buy him out, but he was of the mind that he was better off retaining control of the mine. He later found out the men who wanted to purchase his mine were from Wells Fargo, and they wanted his land by whatever means necessary. They cut off his water supply, and Charles had to abandon his investment. Whoa. Okay, Wells Fargo. We're not sponsored now because you shady. <laughs> so you probably have an idea of where this is going now. Oh, no. So you now know, he's jaded against yes. banks. Yes. In a letter written to his wife in August of 1871, he told of an encounter he had with agents from Wells Fargo and Company and that he was, quote, going to take steps, end quote, to rectify the issue they caused without going into any details. Awesome. Mary never received any other letters and eventually assumed he died while prospecting. So she just thought her husband died when he was just like having a good time being a vigilante. Yep. So what she didn't know is that he was alive and well in California and would soon become famous for striking it rich, but not while prospecting. Awesome. So this woman had four children at home. Yep. On a farm. I hope she remarried at least. I don't think she did. I didn't see anything in their family tree about her remarrying. That's really sad. So Charles' first robbery took place on July 26th, 1875 on a mountain pass known as Funk Hill (laughs) in Calaveras County, just four miles outside of Copperopolis, California. Copperopolis? Yep. I love that name. I really like that a lot. Where do you live? Copperopolis. Yeah. Do you imagine trying to say where you live when you're drunk in a taxi trying to get home? So Wells Fargo stagecoach driver John Shine stated that a man in a long soiled duster appeared in front of the coach with a flour sack over his head, bearing two holes for his eyes. I love that they they said it was a soil duster. Like yep. they had to insult him. We'll let you know that it's like a dirty duster. Yeah. So this dirty man with a flower sack <laughs> over his head came up to us like a creep. In his hands, he held a double barrel 12 gauge shotgun. Ooh. Yep. Okay. And John noted he also had a Henry rifle slung over his shoulder. In a deep voice, the man commanded John to please throw down the box. Before shouting, if he dares shoot, give him a solid volley, boys. Confused, John looked around him and saw hidden amongst boulders on the hillside what to him looked like six rifles, all pointed at the stagecoach. Dang. So even even if he thought he had he could take him, this dirty man. Yep. He can't take all these other people too. Yep. So John did what any smart man would do. He reached under his seat and withdrew the strong box, which was a wooden box reinforced with iron bands and padlocks. The box contained $348, which would equate to just over $8,200 today. Wow. And John tossed it along with the mail sacks he was carrying to the ground. Dang. Before we continue, at this time, stagecoaches would transport money and the mail. Yep. So for... Any crimes moving forward, I'm not going to note the mail, but just know that whenever he robbed a stagecoach, he also took the mailbags with him. Yeah, probably to see if anybody was sending money. And probably to make sure that he was covering his tracks. Yeah. You know what I mean? So John warned his passengers that included two men as well as eight women and children to not do anything stupid. Yeah. One of the panicked women threw her purse out the window 
and the bandit picked it up before bowing and handing it back to her, saying simply, Madam, I do not wish your money. In that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo. Dang. Yep. A little bit of spite there. Yep. So then then he's more like a Robin Hoodie like figure. Yes. Yep. Because he doesn't want everyone's money, even though he is taking everyone's money because that's where they put it. Yep. But fine. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Having accomplished his mission, the man motioned for John to head on his way. As he drove off, he glanced back and saw Charles attack the strong box with a hatchet. I mean, he didn't know his name, but yeah. After driving some distance, John stopped his stagecoach. So his stagecoach had barely stopped when another approached, driven by Donald McLean of Sonora. He came upon the robber hacking at the strong box and stopped the coach. Charles asked Donald to throw down the express box. Donald leveled his double-barreled shotgun at Charles and told him he didn't have an express box. This is interesting. Mm -hmm. At that time, there was an unspoken sort of rule amongst drivers and robbers that if a driver stated he did not have what the robber was looking for, they would take them at their word. However, if the robber found out that the driver had lied, then it was understood that should the robber come upon them again, they would shoot and kill them. Damn. All right. I thought that was very interesting. So there was a sort of code of honor amongst the two of them. Strange. Well, I suppose, like, if you think about it, they're both just, you know, doing what they need to do. Yeah. Like, they know that the other is just doing what they need to do to get by. The robber's a little less so. But, you know, like, if they know that they're desperate enough and the robbers know that those people are literally just doing their jobs. Yeah. (laughs) It's not them. Yeah. So in this instance, Charles believed Donald and told him to go on his way. And as Donald approached the other stagecoach, he stopped and men from both coaches went back down the road to see that half a dozen guns were pointed at them from outlaws positioned along the hills. Once they realized that the outlaws weren't moving, they approached only to discover that it was sticks pointed at them. Dang. He's a clever man. Having successfully completed his first heist, Black Bart was officially born. Nice. And this was the only robbery in which Bart would have two guns on him. After this first heist, he later sold his Henry rifle to a farmer's wife for $10, which is around 240 bucks today. Dang. After stopping at her farm to ask for directions. He's like, hey, I see you don't have a weapon. Want one? Want one? <laughs> Over the next eight years... Bart would commit a total of 28 robberies. Wow. He never used horses as he was terrified of them and committed all of his crimes on foot. Wow. Okay. He never used foul language and always politely asked the drivers to, quote, please throw down the box and the mailbags. Interesting. He also never altered his appearance. He continued to wear the long linen duster and a bowler hat over his flower sack mask. I love that he put a hat on his flower sack mask. I know. <laughs> like, class it up. Yep. So now we're going to go through all of the robberies. Okay. And I didn't put a crazy amount of detail into each of these because there are 28 of them. Okay. So on December 28th, 1875, he held up driver Mike Hogan in Yuba County outside of Smartville. On June 2nd, 1876, he held up driver A.C. Adams in Siskiyou County outside of Cottonwood. And this one was a nighttime robbery. Okay. Risky. Risky. 
Black Bart left a lasting impression during his robbery on August 3rd, 1877, when he held up a coach in Sonoma County outside of Fort Ross. He left behind a poem after running off with the $300, which is about $7,300 today, yeah. in the strong box. The poem read as follows. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of bitches. Honey. <laughs> And he signed it Black Bart, 1877. On July 25th, 1878, Bart held up a coach in Butte County outside of Berry Creek Sawmill for $379 or just just under $11,000 today. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Where he left his second and final poem, which reads as follows. Here I lay me down to sleep to wait the coming morrow. Perhaps success, perhaps defeat and everlasting sorrow. But come what will, I'll try it on. My condition can't be worse. And if there's money in that box, tis money in my purse. This is my favorite. He signed it Black Bart, the Po 8. So it's P-O and number 8. <laughs> Cute! <laughs> Your heart out, Avril Lavigne. Oh my god. I laughed so hard when I read that. And after the papers got wind of his poetry, he started to be known as the poetic robber. And by this point, California Governor William Irwin had had enough and announced a $300 reward for the capture and conviction of Black Bart. Wells Fargo added $300 to this reward, with the U.S. Postal Service adding another $200. So with the pot now set at $800, which is $21,500 today. Wow. The hunt was on for Black Bart, James B. Hume, who was the chief investigator for Wells Fargo, leading the charge. And even with this high bounty on his head, Bart continued his crime spree. Yeah, he doesn't care. Yeah. On July 30th, 1878, he held up driver D.E. Barry in Plumas County outside of LaPorte. On October 2nd, 1878, in Mendocino County outside Yukia, he held up driver Alec Fowler. The very next day, on October 3rd, 1878, he held up driver Nate Waltrip in the same area just outside of Potter Valley. June 21st, 1879, he held up driver Dave Quadlin in Butte County outside of Forbestown. October 25th, 1879, was his second nighttime robbery in Shasta County near Buckeye, where he held up driver Jim Smithson. What a name. I know. And a few days later, on October 27th, hey, hey. Eighteen seventy nine, he held up driver Ed Payne outside of Millville in the same county, and Bart was quiet for almost a full year after this before he okay. struck again on September first, eighteen eighty, when he held up driver Charles Kramer in Shasta County near Last Chance Station, and perhaps fearing he might be caught visiting his old stomping grounds. On September 16, 1880, Bart hit up driver George Chase in Jackson County in Oregon. Around a week later, he struck again on September 23, 1880, around three miles from the California state border, when he held up driver George Chase. And the following month, on November 20, 1880, one mile outside of Oregon, Bart held up driver Joe Mason. So when he wasn't holding up stagecoaches, Charles lived in Webb's Hotel at 47 Second Street, room 40, in pleasantly furnished rooms in San Francisco. And that would have been so nice, too, especially mm -hmm. in San Francisco. So in 1880, Charles was 51 and could be seen about town sporting a tweed suit with a velvet collared top coat, 
a cravat fastened with a diamond stick pin, a gold watch chain, an elegant bowler hat. He completed the look with the well-groomed mustache. Makes sense. So those who saw him thought of him as a successful businessman whose cover story was that he was in the mining industry. Mm. Well, technically, he never stopped. It was just... Yeah. His crime spree picked up again on August 31st, 1881, when he held up driver John Sulaway in Siskiyou County outside Recca. I think that's how you say it. It's got a Y at the beginning of it, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, California. Sounds like a corrections cubby later. Probably. If anything. On October 11th, 1881, Black Bart committed his first double robbery by first hitting up driver Horace Williams in his third nighttime robbery outside Redding before hitting up driver Lewis Brewster near Montgomery Creek and Shasta County. December 1881 saw him commit two robberies, one on the 15th in Yuba County outside of Dobbins, where he held up driver George Sharp, and on the 27th in Nevada County outside of Bridgeport, where he held up driver Luther Sherman. And Bart started 1882 with his first robbery on January 26th. He held up robber Harry Force in Mendocino County outside of Cloverdale. He would commit four more robberies in 1882, June 14th outside of Lake Little Lake in Mendocino County, where he held up Thomas Force. But he encountered some trouble on July 13th outside of Laporte in Plumas County, where he held up driver George Helms, who fired on and injured Bart. Oh, dang. And he would have been pretty old by then. Like somebody in his 50s back then was ancient. And he walked all of these places. Yeah. He would have been really fit. Yeah. So this was the only robbery where he walked away with nothing. And Bart picked up his crime spree again on September 17th in Shasta County when he held up Horace Williams outside of Bass Hill. His last robbery in 1882 took place on November 23rd in Sonoma County outside of Cloverdale when he held up Dick Crawford. Spring of 1883 saw Bart continuing his crime spree on April 12th in Sonoma County outside Cloverdale, where he held up driver Bill Connebeck before he struck again on June 23rd in Amador County outside Jackson and held up driver Clint Radcliffe. Wow. Bart's last robbery took place, ironically, right where his crime spree first began at Funk Hill on November 3rd, 1883. You think he planned that? Maybe. The stagecoach was driven by Reason McConnell, who stopped at Reynolds Ferry to pick up the son of the ferry owner, a 19-year-old named Jimmy Rolleri. The stagecoach dropped Jimmy off at the bottom of the hill along the creek so he could hunt with the rifle he brought with him before meeting back up with the stagecoach on the other side of the hill. When he reached the other side and the stagecoach was nowhere to be found, he walked up the road where he saw the driver and his team of horses. McConnell relayed to Jimmy that Black Bart had held up the coach, forcing McConnell to unhitch the team and take them over the crest of the hill. Because remember, he's afraid of horses. Mm -hmm. Bart then tried to remove the strong box, but it had been bolted to the floor and took him some time to remove it. When Jimmy and McConnell crested the hill, they saw Bart backing out the coach with the strong box in tow. McConnell took Jimmy's rifle and fired upon Bart twice, but missed. Jimmy took back his rifle and fired on Bart again as he entered into a thicket where they saw him stumble. Mm. As they ran to intercept him, they found a bloody bundle of mail that he dropped after he'd been wounded in the hand. Bart ran for a quarter mile before stopping to wrap his hand in a handkerchief to stem the bleeding. He stuffed the sack of gold into a rotten log, but took $500, 
which was around $14,000 today, in gold coins for himself. He hid his shotgun in a hollow tree, threw everything else he had away, and then booked it out of there. And this would prove to be his undoing. So remember that detective from earlier? Yeah. Well, when James B. Hume arrived on the scene of Bart's most recent robbery, he found a number of personal items, eyeglasses, food, and a handkerchief with a laundry mark, FXO7. Which would be like his address or something. So none of this might make much sense to you, but back then, all laundries would use laundry marks to keep track of their customers and their orders. And each mark was unique. So Hume, along with Detective Harry N. Morse, contacted every laundry in San Francisco. And after visiting almost 90 of them, they were finally able to trace the mark to Ferguson and Biggs, California Laundry on Bush Street on Monday, November 12th. So it took them like almost two weeks. Still, I'm impressed that they found him. Yep. Especially during that time. In an odd twist of fate, Charles just happened to walk into the laundry to pick up his cleaning at the time the investigators were there. Dang. His luck had run out. <laughs> Literally. Yep. He accepted his capture with his usual grace, putting his hands in the air and stating, gentlemen, I pass. Oh, well, yeah. I suppose at that age, too, you know. Yep. He's tired. He's been walking this whole time. He's got yeah. enough money. It wasn't long before Hume and Morris learned more about Charles Bowles, like how he told people he was a mining engineer who made, quote, frequent business trips, unquote, that just happened to take place on the dates that the stagecoaches would get robbed. Yeah. Upon questioning, Charles initially denied being Black Bart before finally admitting to the crimes he committed prior to 1879. Charles was under the impression that the statute of limitations had expired on his crimes mm -hmm. and gave his name as T.Z. Spaulding when he was booked. The investigators were quick to find a gift from his wife, a Bible, with his real name inscribed in it. The inscription read as follows. This precious Bible is presented to Charles E. Bowles, 1st Sergeant Company B, 116th Illinois Volunteer Infantry, by his wife as a New Year's gift. God gives us hearts to which his faith to believe. Cater, Illinois, 1865. That's really sweet. But I also know. like, uh-oh. Yep. <laughs> I know. So the police report written on him noted that Charles was, quote, a person of great endurance. Yeah, he must have been. Truly. Exhibited genuine wit under most trying circumstances and was extremely proper and polite in behavior. Eschews profanity, end quote. So he like refused to swear. Cute. When asked how he came up with the name Black Bart, Charles admitted that the name just popped into his mind when he was writing his first poem. He'd heard it some time ago when reading a dime novel. And even though he wasn't the villain in the novel, he instead operated as a gentleman robber. Okay, interesting. At his trial, Wells Fargo only pressed charges on the final robbery on November 3rd, 1883. November 16th, Charles entered a plea of guilty for the single charge. Charles was convicted on November 21st, 1883, and sentenced to six years in San Quentin prison. Dang. Charles was booked under the name Charles E. Bolton, and it's believed that he used this alteration on his name to prevent any attention being brought to his wife and children, spare them the embarrassment. Aww. At the time he was sentenced, Charles was 55 and only served four years of his sentence as number 11046 before being released on January 22nd, 1888, for good behavior. Okay. Upon his release, it was obvious his health had deteriorated considerably. 
He had visibly aged, his eyesight was failing, and he'd gone deaf in one ear. After his release, reporters asked him if he planned to rob any more stagecoaches, to which he replied, quote, no, gentlemen, I'm through with crime, end quote. And even though he always brandished a shotgun, Charles never once fired it during his long career as an outlaw. And I'm sure you're wondering, how much did he actually walk away with? You know, I wasn't, but now I am. All told, Charles Black Bart Bowles stole $18,000 or around $425,000 today. Wow. Is there any record of him sending any of it home? Um, I did read somewhere that he did send some of it home to his wife because he would write her letters. So because uh, like at first at first when we were doing like the in the beginning, I was like, wow, he's kind of a jerk leaving his family like that. But then towards the end, like he was still writing letters to her. He changed his name so that they wouldn't be associated with each other. Yeah. Like it just <laughs> honestly, it just sounds like a super sassy man mm-hmm. that was too embarrassed to go home. Yeah. Like he didn't want to go home and fail and he wanted to get revenge, but only on Wells Fargo. Yes. So it is kind of like a strange Robin Hood story, only just like slightly less sharing. Yeah. <laughs> like at least, I, yeah, I kind of hoped that he sent some home because he seems like the, the more you talk about him, the more it seems like he would do something like that. Yeah. And after saying that, surprisingly, Charles never did return to his wife, but he did continue to write to her. He let her know that he was tired of being watched by Wells Fargo because they kept an eye on him after he got out of prison. Yeah, I bet they did. And he just wanted to get away from it all. A month oh. after his release from prison in February of 1888, Charles left the Nevada house in San Francisco and vanished. Wells Fargo agents were able to track Charles' movements to the Vesalia House Hotel, and staff were able to confirm that a man that looked like Charles had stayed there temporarily. Some believe he moved to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, but I wasn't able to find any evidence to back up that claim. Okay. Charles Blackbart Bowles was last seen alive on February 28, 1888. The last possible clue to when he may have passed was when his wife, Mary, listed herself as a widow in the 1892 Hannibal, Missouri City Directory. No cause of death or final resting place are known. Interesting. I wonder if they were able to meet up. Because he would have, you would think he would have been able to tell her at some point when he thought he was dying or... For all we know, he might have moved somewhere and changed his name. Yeah. So then we wouldn't know that it was him when he passed. Because he was was able to get away from people before. Mm -hmm. And if he had any remnants of that money, which Mm -hmm. he could have if he sent them, if he sent it to his wife Mm -hmm. and she sent it back. So this is my last fun fact. Over the course of 15 years, bandits and outlaws cost Wells Fargo more than $415,000 or the equivalent of $1,291,807 today. Wow. And that is the story of Black Bart. That's insane. I know. I really like him. I don't know if I'm supposed to like him, but I really like him. I just really like the fact that his motivations weren't necessarily greed-based. And he only was attacking the stagecoaches of Wells Fargo. He never hurt anybody. He was always super polite. 
even when he was captured. And I'm sure even in prison, he was extremely polite because they well, let him out two years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So I just think he was just a decent dude that was petty. Yep. He was just getting people back for screwing him over. Mm-hmm. So and he was probably honestly doing that because they were doing that to everybody else. Well, and it wasn't just him that was screwed over. It yep. was the other minor as well. Mm hmm. So for all we know, maybe he gave some money to that guy, too, as maybe. like, uh, hey, fuck those guys. Like, hey, remember this? Remember those Guess guys what? that put this over? Here you go. <laughs> I did it, too. Yeah. Yeah. I like him. Yeah. I just I had planned to cover his story earlier this year. But at the time that I had planned it, I had a hard time writing it. But this time I can see that because it's. It was a lot of research and there was a lot of conflicting information on some places. So I really had to. I'm sure, especially since like it's Wild West and you don't know like who's exaggerating, who's not. Yep. And so how much telephone was really involved? I had to go back and forth on a lot of different sites to verify the like the dates and his family information, because in a lot of websites, his cousin David was listed as his brother, but mm. on his family tree, there was no David listed as one of his brothers. So then I had to like dig around some more. Yeah. And be like, um, so who's this guy then? I was like, so who's David? And then three of the sites said he was his cousin. So I used that as my basis. So it was, it was a lot of back and forth confirming information. Yeah. That makes sense. It's a cool story though. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I'm Christine, and I'd like to introduce you to the True Crime Files podcast, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles upon the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to the True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light on cases that might otherwise be overlooked or underreported. This week's podcast plug is the True Crime Files podcast. And I really like them because they give quick, well-researched synopsis of a case. Okay. All their episodes are like 30 minutes or less. So you get really quick like snippets, like an overview of a case. It's written by a woman named Christine, and it's narrated by a man named Scott. Another thing I like about their podcast is they'll restate the facts at the end. And encourage you to come to either your own conclusion or go to their website where they have more information on the case available. So if you wanted to do a deep dive and learn more about the case rather than like just what they covered, you can. Nice. So I like that kind of these are what we found. Come to your own conclusions. And it's more like a, here's the bare bone facts of this case. But if you're one of those people that really needs to know more about something, we have that available for you nice yeah well-rounded podcast yes we have another question this week man okay this this one's a good one this is from amanda of the terrible people doing terrible things podcast 
What a great podcast title. I know. And she wants to know, do you prefer ketchup or mustard on your fries or a combination of both? Ketchup. Ketchup. Yeah. I sometimes am sassy and do ketchup with a little bit of mayo. Make it creamier. Go Canadian style. Yep. I, I sometimes do ranch, but I'm also one of those super weird people. I know that this was like a big thing um, when Kim Kardashian admitted to it, but she eats she eats chicken nuggets with honey. Oh, I do too. Yeah. We grew up eating chicken nuggets with honey and like French fries with honey. Mm-hmm. And so some like if I ever get McDonald's, I'll get chicken nuggets with honey and French fries. And I love French fries with honey, like just yep. a little bit, that little bit of sweetness. Mm-hmm. With so the salt. Good. Yep. And honey mustard is different. Like yeah. I don't when well, I'm so picky about honey mustard, too, because <laughs> like, there's some that are really good and some that are just like this is just mustard. Well, yeah, because like some of them are super tangy and more like Thousand Islandy mm-hmm. kind of. And then you have like the sweet honey mustards. Yep. Like everyone is so different yep. with the honey mustard or it's like Dijon. Yep. With honey instead. So I don't know. We weren't really raised with mustardy stuff. If we did, if we did mustard, it was honey mustard. And even then I would always have ketchup as a backup. It was, it was a rare thing. Yeah. So, so I prefer ketchup on my fries as well. Mm-hmm. We'll occasionally do honey when I have the honey left over after having chicken nuggets. Yep. I will do like the f- special fry sauce if there's a fry sauce available oh, where yeah, it's yeah. kind of like, uh, how would you describe it? It's well, like, it's almost- like, it's like sour cream and, uh, not really a salsa, but no, I, it's, I think it's ketchup, mayonnaise, thousand Island and like extra pepper. Yeah. Cause that's really good. I like that. Like raisin cane sauce. Yeah. <laughs> it's so Chef's good. Kiss. <laughs> and if I get the chicken strip basket from Dairy Queen, I will dip my fries in the gravy. The gravy. Oh man. Anybody who's not from the Midwest and hasn't had that weird, probably powdered gravy. It's so it's so thick. It's <laughs> and so it's so bad it's good. Yeah. Like I know. Whenever I get a chicken strip basket, I always get like the honey mustard on the side for the actual chicken and the gravy mm-hmm. for my fries. It's the most random thing ever. But well, do you have something good you'd like to share? Something good. There have been things I'm just trying to think of. Would you like me to go first? Yeah, go first. Okay. So my something good is over the past week, I've been taking a higher dose of my bipolar 2 medication. This is something okay. that was prescribed to me like earlier this year, kind of like in the middle of COVID. Mm-hmm. But I already had so much of my current medication on hand. And it wasn't one where you could like cut the pills in half and like do <sighs> no. one and a half mm-hmm. because that was too high. So I had to wait until I finished my current medication before I could move to the higher dose. But I have been noticing a difference. I haven't been napping as often. because I haven't been feeling as tired. I've been feeling a lot more motivated to get things done. Uh, the first few days, I still was really kind of scatterbrained. Like I would be trying to yeah. do, be trying to do too many things at once. And then I would kind of like my brain would short circuit for a little bit and be like, what are you even doing? Like, what were the things you just did? So I'd have to stop and look at what I was doing and then sort of like go through the list of tasks again. Like, okay, did I do this? Did I do this? Yeah. 
So, and my mood has been sort of evening out a little bit. I mean, I have had a couple of really bad days this week. Yeah. Thursday, I had a particularly bad day where I just woke up and knew that it was going to be a bad day. Like I was just off all day. But yeah. for the most part, I feel like this new medication is, and it's the same medication I've been taking. It's just a higher dose okay. that I feel like it's really helping, which makes me hopeful that when I am dealing with the winter blues, they mm -hmm. won't be as bad. That's awesome. That's so, really great. Yeah. It feels, it's such a relief when like you're on medication like that and your body's finally accepting it and adjusting. So what's your good thing? My good thing. Actually, okay. So my good thing right now is I have started Christmas shopping hmm. for people and I'm trying to stretch it out a lot because my job is kind of secure being mm -hmm. a grant, but like, it's also kind of not. So I want to make sure that I'm, I have something to like, even if we can't see each other, something I can drop off mm -hmm. and like, we can have a zoom Christmas or whatever. I have no idea what it's going to look like. Yeah. But, um, it's, it's brought me a lot of joy thinking about gifts for your children and for you and for mom and dad, just like trying to predict what you guys might like. And I'm trying to do like games or stuff you can do like activities instead of like a blanket <laughs> or socks. But like those are on my list. LOL. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I like I'm good right now at home. I have plenty of stuff to do. I live alone. So like I can shut off the world whenever I want. Mm hmm. So I am okay in that way. So I feel like my needs are different mm -hmm. by a lot. Um, but it's just been really fun, like looking at all these cool little crafts and stuff that they that your kids can do that aren't on screens. So they're not like yep. blinding their eyes mm -hmm. at a young age. So um, that's brought me a lot of joy. Like I'm just really, I, it's also probably a good thing. I won't see you guys for a while yep. because I am the worst at gift giving because the second I get it, I'm, I just want to give it to you now. Yeah. I'm the same way. I just get so excited that I have the perfect gift for you. I just want to give it to you. And I already did this to my partner and I gave him his Christmas <laughs> his birthday present like a month and a half before his birthday. And so I got him something else again. But um, yeah. Shall we shut her down? Yes. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. You can email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Shout out to Kent. Yeah, round two of gifts. Ugh. He sent us a bunch more gifts and it just brought both of us so much joy. He is the oh man. He really is. You can also, if you want to support the podcast, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen. I also like to give out ratings and reviews to my fellow podcasters. I tend to use Podchaser because Apple does not like me as far as using it on my computer. And I have a Android phone, so I can't do it on my phone other than using Podchaser. So wherever you listen, and if there's a way to give a rating and review please consider doing so. 
like we said, if either it was last week or the week before, but whatever you want. If you'd like to give us a one-time donation, you can do so on Buy Me a Coffee. And speaking of, I would like to send a special shout out and thank you to Paul from the Cold Collars Comedy Podcast for buying Maddie and I each a cup of coffee recently. Thank you. That was very nice. nice. And along that vein, I'd also like to say a mazel to Paul and his fiance because on the day that we're recording this, it would have been their wedding. But because of COVID, they had to postpone it. So I hope you guys were able to do something fun. Yeah. If anything, uh, I hope you smashed a cake in each other's faces. Or, you know, stepped on a glass or something. Yeah. Both. But be careful. Don't eat cake glass. Don't eat glass cake. That's that's not a good idea. That's not a good. Don't don't mix those. Yeah. You can also support us on Patreon for as low as $5 a month. And once again, Tea Public is having an awesome sale. I'm stoked. I'm getting stuff for our own families. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so this week they're doing their $13 pre-Cyber Week sale. November 17th through the 22nd. So if you've been waiting to purchase merch, uh, now is the time because Mm -hmm. it is on sale. If you order it now, it should be, you should have received it well before the holidays. So you can gift it to friends and family. Which is what we're doing. Exactly. (laughs) Love us. And uh, whether you want to or not. Right. (laughs) We don't care if you listen, just wear it. (laughs) Wear this. (laughs) uh that's kind of all the ways that you can support the show and reach out to us and on that note as always i'm Lindsay, and i'm madison and we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime